Thanks, Jocelyn. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, Why don't we pray as we uh, look at God's word together? Let's pray. Teach us your ways, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Our Father, we pray that as we look at this passage uh, together, uh, you would uh, strengthen our hearts and help us to walk in faith in you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when times are hard, God can be trusted. That's the message of our chapters this morning. When times are hard, God can be trusted. I'm sure that all of us would say that these uh, weeks are some of the more challenging times uh, that we've lived through. So it's wonderful that God, in His kindness, has given us His Word to encourage and strengthen us for times like these. Now, the hard times that Abram faces in these chapters uh, might not be the same as uh, anything that we're facing, but as we see how he trusts God and we see the character of God revealed in these chapters, I think we could be strengthened and encouraged. Uh, In both our chapters, 13 and 14, uh, Abram has to face conflict. Uh, In chapter 13, it's family conflict uh, with Lot and his men. And then in chapter 14, it's conflict on a whole other level with war and kidnap. But in both these chapters, we see Abram, uh, where he failed in last week's uh, passage, where he compromised his faith in last week's chapter. In this week's chapters, he remains resolute in his trust in God. But these chapters don't just say, um, Abram trusted God, be like Abram. No, they show us what faith looks like under pressure. And they show us why God can be trusted even if we are under incredible pressure like Abram was. And they also wonderfully point beyond themselves to the Lord Jesus and the ultimate reason that as Christians uh, we can trust God and have even greater reasons than Abram did. Well, chapter 13 opens with Abram, Lot, and their uh, entourages coming to Bethel. Uh, The Lord has blessed them so much uh, that they have so many uh, herds and flocks and workers uh, that verse 6 tells us the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great and they were not able to stay together. Now, I know that might seem like a, a nice problem to have, you know, too much wealth, Uh, but it it lends to conflict between their extended households. Uh, Family conflict uh, in the Bible, as in our own day, uh, is never a pleasant experience. And Abram knows it can't go on. Uh, So he decides that he and Lot have to go their separate ways. Uh, What does Abram, the man of faith, do? Well, you know, he could play the seniority card, Uh, You know, he's Lot's uncle, after all, and he could just take the best land for himself. But Abram tells Lot, verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Uh, Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. In other words, Lot, you can have first pick. Uh, We have a rule in our house. uh, If two people are uh, dividing up, say, uh, you know, some cheesecake or something, uh, one person cuts the other person chooses. Uh, You cut, I choose. Or I cut, 
you choose. Well, Abram says to Lot, uh, you can cut and you can choose. Uh, the choice is yours. Abram is the model of generosity, and it flows from his faith. Uh, the author shows us in this chapter that, that Abram's generosity is flowing from his uh, faith. Uh, the chapter begins and ends with reference to Abram's faith in God. Uh, verse 4, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Uh, verse 18, he built an altar to, to the Lord. Uh, walking by faith means that when the believer is under pressure, they can be generous like Abram is. And Abram's faith is contrasted with Lot. Uh, Lot's not presented as a villain in this chapter, uh, but we see that his choices are not flowing from faith. Now, what's the basis on which Lot makes his decision? Well, verse 10 tells us that he looked around and saw. Uh, Abram acts out of faith. Uh, Lot is acting out of sight. Now, he sees the beautiful land before him, like the Garden uh, of Eden, like Egypt. Uh, Lot is acting according to sight. Uh, faith and sight are uh, frequently contrasted as opposites in the Bible. Uh, we actually uh, sang about that in our, in our last song. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's from uh, 2 Corinthians, where Paul says that believers walk by faith, not by sight. He also say that we, says we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is unseen is eternal. Now, Lot's not being presented as a villain. Uh, Hebrews tells us that he is a righteous man. But here, he's acting like an unbeliever. And the results of Lot's decision, uh, well, we see it uh, play out very negatively. Uh, he ends up basically living in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're told, verse 10, that uh, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot's decision made on the basis of sight is not a very wise one because the place that he's chosen to live is going to be destroyed. We're also told, verse 13, the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Uh, Lot walks by sight. He fixes his eyes on what is seen and it leads him to live very close to people who are extremely wicked, who sin greatly against the Lord, and who are destined for judgment. But again, the, the, the chapter doesn't just say, uh, you know, Lot made the, the wrong choice, Abram made the right choice, don't be like Lot, be like Abram. No, it, look at how God reveals himself to Abram at the end of the chapter. Uh, God's already made wonderful promises to Abram in chapter 12. We saw those uh, last week. Uh, but here it's, it's as if he's expanding on these already incredibly great promises. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. It's the promise of chapter 12, wonderfully amplified. Uh, Lot acts according to sight, and he gets what looks like the Garden of Eden. Abram acts generously from faith, and he gets a promise. 
doesn't it seem like Lot gets the better deal? Well, again, spoiler alert, as we read through Genesis, uh, we see that things don't exactly go smoothly for Lot. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Uh, Lot escapes by the skin of his teeth, and he ends up penniless and in a very morally compromised situation. And yet, it's not as if Abram receives what God promises him. At the end of his life, he's still living as a pilgrim. And I guess that's something that all of us as Christians wrestle with. Walking by faith is difficult because so often we have to wait to receive what God has promised us. Think of the wonderful promises that we have as Christians. Think of the the promise of resurrection, that one day we will have bodies like the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus. That's a wonderful promise but we won't receive it until the future. Uh, The life of faith can seem intangible. And, and, you know, we we feel like sometimes, well, actually, I'd I'd rather have some real estate like Lot, even if it is in a dodgy neighborhood. But we know that uh, the the things that God has promised us, uh, resurrection bodies, eternal life in the new creation are infinitely more valuable than even the most valuable real estate that this world affords. And that's something we have to remind ourselves. It doesn't come naturally to us. Uh, Faith does not come naturally to us. Uh, It's built on the promises of God. And so just like Abram would have uh, continued to think on and remind himself of the promises that God had uh, given to him to sustain him as he walked in this world, that's exactly what we have to do. We have to remind ourselves of the promises that God has given us. We have to remind each other of the promises that God has given us. Because it's those promises that will sustain us by faith as we live through uh, this uh, world uh, with its challenges. But I think chapter 14 uh, shows us uh, the, the power of faith in God and God's character. His promises are relevant not just for the future, but it's something very real and tangible in the present. There is a present aspect uh, to to faith and salvation. And uh, chapter 14 uh, can be a a confusing uh, chapter when uh, you first uh, read it because of the the, the names of the kings that uh, Jocelyn read so well earlier. Uh, Basically, what's going on is there are four very powerful kings from the east And they're coming to attack the five kings that live around Sodom and Gomorrah, where uh, Abram and Lot are. And and it seems that those kind of smaller, weaker kings around Sodom and Gomorrah had rebelled, uh, which essentially meant uh, stop paying taxes uh, to these uh, more powerful uh, eastern kings. And uh, they were going to come and uh, put on that uh, rebellion. And uh, the eastern force is unstoppable, like a juggernaut. They just run through uh, Canaan. They sweep everyone in their path. And, uh, you know, when they finally engage uh, uh, the rebels in battle in verse 8, we're not surprised that uh, Kedileomer and the eastern kings totally defeat uh, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies so that they have to uh, flee for the hills. Uh, So the first 11 chapters, uh, sorry, first 11 verses of chapter 14 Uh, underline for us how strong, how invincible those pagan kings are. But 
you know, we might ask, so what? Why, why, why are we getting this history lesson? Uh, well, it's at this point, though, that the story suddenly gets interesting for us. Uh, you see, in, in one sense, nothing that happens in the first 11 verses is all that remarkable. There, these sort of wars between kings and city-states went, went on all the time, uh, year in, year out, in the Eastern world. But the key for us is that these Eastern kings don't just defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. No, verse 12, they capture Lot, who was living in Sodom, and they carry him off. Now, from what we've just read, we might think that's the end of, of Lot. Uh, these uh, powerful kings have just defeated uh, everyone before them, conquered uh, vast swathes of the region. What hope is there for Lot? Well, there is hope, because Lot is not just Lot, a casualty of war. He's Lot, verse 12, Abram's nephew. And at this point, we move from the description of the pagan kings to a description of Abram, God's faithful servant, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eschol and of Aner. But it still seems pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Uh, what can Abram do against these five kings who've defeated everyone in their path, who seems so unstoppable. How can Abram do anything for his nephew? And perhaps more fundamentally, why would Abram do anything for his nephew? Because you could say that Lot has been greeting, greedy. Uh, he's, in a sense, despised his uncle by choosing the, the much more obviously better land. And further, Lot has shown himself to be a fool, and increasingly so. This is a really interesting detail. If you compare chapter 13, verse 12, he's living near Sodom. And then chapter 14, verse 12, he's living in Sodom. Uh, he, here's a man who's kind of increasingly embracing uh, evil, it seems. So why should Abram save Lot? Uh, this man who has uh, slighted him and who's got himself into strife as a result of his own folly. And how can Abram save Lot? How can he defeat these all-conquering eastern kings? Well, Abram is moved to action, verse 14. Uh, when he hears his relative has been taken captive, he calls out the 318 uh, men born in his household, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. It's like a Hollywood rescue movie. It's like saving Private Ryan. Uh, Abram and his men are going to bring uh, his nephew home. And amazingly, he does it. He rescues his nephew. Verse 15, during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobath, uh, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods, brought back his, his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and other people. Now, as skillful as Abram and uh, his 318 men no, uh, undoubtedly were, ultimately, we're told that Abram's victory depends on the power of God. That's the point that's stressed in verse 20. It's God who's delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. Uh, these all-conquering kings, uh, which might be able to defeat uh, every uh, human before them, well, they are no uh, uh, comparison to the all-powerful God. So the account reminds us of God's power to save, but it also reminds us of God's character why would Abram bother to rescue his foolish, erring nephew who's increasingly getting caught up in sin? Well, 
Because God is a God who saves sinners. Uh, Abram's uh, rescue of Lot reminds us that God is a God who rescues lost, fallen sinners, like Lot and like us. God is a God who brings the foolish wanderer back. Uh, God is a God who, uh, even the backsliding and those living too close to evil, uh, God will not allow them to remain at the mercy of, uh, uh, of evil. And God will not allow Lot to remain at the mercy of these foreign kings. What a wonderful encouragement for us Uh, Even as we're reminded of the character of God, uh, a merciful, rescuing God, not treating us as our sins deserve, but saving those who don't deserve to be saved. We need to remember that God saved us even when we were foolish sinners like Lot. Christ died for us even when we were his enemies. And now, how much more having uh, died for us, having saved us, will he ensure that we make it to the new creation? So if you're discouraged about your own failure, your own sin, your own weakness, remember the God who rescued Lot. Uh, Even here, uh, uh, this early in the Bible, we're we're getting these wonderful glimpses of the outline of the gospel, Uh, the gospel that God loves and saves his own, even though we are corrupt and sinful and worldly. However, the story doesn't end there. And uh, the chapter uh, finishes with Abram uh, encountering two other kings. Uh, First is Abram's encounter with the king of Sodom uh, when he refuses to compromise. And uh, if you ever look at the detail, you can see that the, uh, the king of Sodom subtly tries to make Abram dependent on him. Uh, But Abram knows what's going on. Uh, He knows the king of Sodom is actually trying to control him. But as a man of faith in God, he won't compromise. He won't compromise. And so he swears before the Lord that he will not, verse 23, take a thread or a sandal or a uh, sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram is dependent on God and God alone. And he won't uh, depend on this uh, evil king, even when he offers him so much. Uh, Abram's faith leads him uh, not to compromise, but to recognize that the Lord is his reward. And and that's uh, something uh, specifically that God uh, commends him for in the next chapter. But in the midst of uh, Abram's encounter with the king of Sodom, there's an encounter with another king. And uh, that's a little bit more mysterious. uh, Verse 18. Uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Uh, Here's Melchizedek. Uh, Like Abram, he's a believer in the true God. Uh, But unlike Abram, he's a king and he's a priest. Uh, He's a priest of God Most High and he's king of Salem, probably the the place that would later become the city of Jerusalem. Unlike the king of Sodom, he doesn't uh, come out and uh, demand of Abram. No, he brings out a feast of bread and wine for Abram and blesses him. Now, in one sense, there's 
nothing remarkable about this man. He's a, just a great contrast to the king of Sodom. Uh, he doesn't seem to stand out. And uh, Melchizedek uh, never appears again in the storyline of uh, Genesis. Uh, but he is mentioned a couple of other times in the Bible, once in Psalm 110, and then in, in the letter of Hebrews in the, in the New Testament. And uh, Hebrews spends a lot of time because uh, Hebrews sees uh, Melchizedek as a very significant figure. Why? What, what is it about Melchizedek that's so significant? Well, firstly, in blessing Abram, he shows that he's greater than Abram. And Abram recognizes that because he gives a tenth of what he, um, tenth of the plunder to Melchizedek. Here is someone that Abram recognizes is greater even than himself. Now, in the Bible, uh, Abram or Abraham uh, is not merely an individual. Uh, he, he's not merely even a significant individual. No, for um, Israel, Abraham was the father of their nation. In a sense, he symbolized the nation itself. And so when the Bible shows us Abram paying tithes to Melchizedek, it's saying something profoundly significant. It's showing us that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and so greater than anyone else in Israel's history. But it's not so much Melchizedek as an individual, uh, but Melchizedek as the one that he stands for. And that's the point that Hebrews uh, makes. Uh, Hebrews sees Melchizedek as representing Jesus, uh, greater than Abram, greater than the entire sacrificial and legal system that came after Abram. Uh, like Melchizedek, uh, Jesus is a king and a priest who, in a sense, stands above and beyond all of Israel's history. And uh, Jesus, uh, Melchizedek, who points to Jesus, points us uh, to Jesus as the one who rescues uh, God's people forever. Uh, think of uh, Abram rescuing Lot. Well, a, a few chapters later, he's having to do it again. Uh, Lot is back living in uh, wicked Sodom and needs Abram to, to pray for him to be saved from God's wrath. It, it's as if Lot continually needs Abram to save him. Well, Melchizedek, uh, with his priesthood, points us to Jesus with his never-ending priesthood who prays for us and prays to sustain us. Uh, that's the point of uh, Hebrews 7.25, a uh, very uh, key verse where at the end of a chapter where um, uh, Hebrews has been sort of comparing Jesus and Melchizedek, uh, concludes with this wonderful point, therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Uh, Melchizedek comes out, he, he blesses Abraham. He's a, he's a picture of God's blessing and sustaining grace. But he points to Jesus who does the same sort of thing that Melchizedek, Melchizedek does, but on a, a, an infinitely greater level. He sustains us and blesses us forever. When times are hard, and they are hard, and we mustn't minimize it, but when times are hard, God can be trusted. Abram saw that in his life time and time again. 
Uh, he didn't always respond with faith towards God. But God showed himself time and time again that he could be trusted. We have even more reason than Abram to know that God can be trusted. Uh, Melchizedek, this kind of wonderfully shadowy figure in our passage, who blesses Abraham, is this powerful picture of the Lord Jesus who always lives to bless and sustain us, to keep us trusting in him so that we make it to the end, so that we make it to the time when we receive everything that has been promised to us. When times are hard, God can be trusted. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful picture that we have in this passage of Abram, uh, the man of faith who trusted in you and uh, who, as a result of his faith in you, was uh, generous, uh, who did not uh, compromise. Uh, but Father, we thank you for uh, this uh, passage as well, pointing us through Melchizedek uh, to the Lord Jesus, uh, the one who always uh, blesses and sustains us and who always lives to intercede for us. And we thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen.